Bonjour, ni hao, comme estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Anyone can talk about and draft strategy, but execution is increasingly where the battle is won. Connecting these phases is very challenging and those who do it well will be at the top of their game. These people move in very tight circles and often keep a low profile. They'll have battle scars to show, skin in the game and money in play, but learning from their practical wisdom is priceless. So it's my job to find the best people in the world and convince them to be interviewed for the benefit of all. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. It's always nice when you stumble across people in strategy who have an interesting background. And the more diverse and strange the background, the better the strategist in my book. These people tend to be a wealth of wisdom and have a certain perspective that only comes off the back of diversity of thought, which in turn stems from a diversity of life experience. And Krim's career so far is strong and broad, with a very solid foundation of both book and street smarts. It started with a double degree in computer science and energy engineering, before he moved into product strategy and management consulting roles. His CV is impressive, to say the least. But then there's the global context. And to say he's multicultural is an understatement. He's lived and worked in seven different countries, which beats my measly four. And this global curiosity must have helped him land a role at the business travel division of Expedia Group, which is where he led global projects to help create a customer obsession culture in order to drive business growth. And managing a $15 million budget and bringing together over seven different departments in a tech company to make them more customer centric is no easy feat. He's just finished a product role at Safety Culture at the start of 2021, which is an Australian unicorn startup. Currently, he's a senior leadership role at Cascade, a strategy software platform that's focused on bridging the gap between planning and execution. And this is why we had to talk, because connecting these two phases is one of the most challenging things a company will ever do. This whole episode is just on this topic, but have no fear, there's a lot to pick up and much more value in this discussion. You'll learn why companies don't follow through with their strategy and what the three main things are that prevent uh, companies from doing so. And on the flip side, you'll find out which things need to be present for it to work really well. There's takeaways for both large and small companies here. You can find out why we're both very dismissive of bringing external management consultants into Greyhead boardroom annual strategy days. You'll also learn which question you should ask yourself before starting any task in order to instantly become more strategic. You can find out what prevents innovation and all the true hallmarks of high innovation companies. You can also learn why company culture is so pivotal and underestimated as a successful strategy driver and what specific challenges uh, remote working culture has posed for the strategy process. All of these questions and more will be covered in lots of detail. So if you don't learn something from this episode, you haven't been listening. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Karim Zuri. Welcome to the show, Karim. How are you? Hey, good afternoon. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, great. Um, well, we've been sharing some banter on LinkedIn the last uh, couple of months, right? And uh, I thought it was probably time, considering we both work in strategy, to have a chat. And I was really interested in what you're doing. But first, before we do that, uh, we wanted to share a glass of champagne. Um, and your French is a lot better than mine. But uh, which bottle have you brought today? Yeah, I have Veuve Clicquot with me. 
uh, and I think it's about time to start drinking together because we we've been talking for two months. It's almost like a romance a relationship starting here. So it's definitely time to uh, to take a how to say to make a toast and it's then drink some champagne together. Yeah, yeah, it's starting. It's okay, starting I... strong here. I think it has to. <laughs> Okay, well, I've um, got mine poured already, so I'll wait for you to pop the bottle and cheers. Pretty full. Oh, you haven't poured yet. Uh, yeah, I've got an old bottle too, go. so uh, mine looks very yellow. Yours yeah. is a lot lighter, so cheers. Cheers. Here you go. To the camera without breaking the camera. Um, so why Ooh, uh, I, a sip. I don't know. I think it is, um, well, on honestly, one of the uh, first ones that you find in Australia. If I were in France right now, I would be much more picky. But the reality is that we are in Australia and having a French brand, obviously only French brands can be called Champagne. And we're not going uh, that direction because we can talk about it for an hour. Uh, that's the first one I found. Well, it's an interesting point. It's very widely distributed. Um, we had another guest uh, on a couple of episodes ago. Um, again, uh, we were drinking Verklinko. It was uh, the Impact guys, Ayan and Peter. And um, yeah, very interesting LVMH brand, you know, big great distribution everywhere so you'll probably see it everywhere because that's quite intentional as part of their selling process i wonder how many of them are fmh a lot yeah that's it quite a few you'd be surprised uh the, t the top three uh well top two at least and um i know the biggest one in france is uh nicolas fouillette's fouillette yes fouillette's yes fouillette yeah uh it, it comes around like maybe 22 euro uh, 22 euros maybe or something like that I lost tracking of prices. I think it was, yeah, that would be a fair price uh, for the bottle of Nicola Fiat. I think here's like $60. Is it $60? Yes. It's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty expensive here uh, for whatever reason. But, That's uh, 40 like euros. Before, so. Yeah. Um, but today we are talking about strategy. And the reason I'm talking to you is because um, you are working for Cascade. And Cascade is doing similar thing to what I'm trying to do is connect the phases of strategic planning to tactical execution. Obviously, you're doing this for, for a lot larger firms, but I thought, um, you know, I'm more in that sort of SMB space or, or mid-cap space. Um, obviously, you're doing this against you know, companies with multiple business units or more complex operations. But I thought maybe there's some learnings for small and medium businesses and, and vice versa, um, because I know you've worked from that startup realm as well. So you've got a wealth of knowledge. So yep. I really want to dig down into this. Um, first question, what is strategy? Strategy is putting a plan together, defining where you want to be, and then get all these steps, the deliverables, the milestones, and the people to get you there. That's exactly what strategy is in the most simple, maybe, description of it. And then on the flip side, uh, what isn't strategy? Uh, what does strategy sometimes get hmm. labeled, but it isn't? Strategy is not a PowerPoint presentation that you just go and celebrate and you build for hours and days, and then you just go and communicate to your entire team, this is our strategy, ta-da! Welcome, this is our new plan. This is not strategy. A strategy is not an Excel file that you plan with your finance team and you put all your budgets in and you put all of these um, cost centers, etc. This is not strategy. I feel like I can tell you much more about what a strategy is not versus what strategy is because a strategy is so simple. It's just that statement of like, where do I want to go and how do I get there versus everything else that people think is strategy Three white men in a boardroom thinking about the future of the business. This is not strategy. What else do you want me to say? 
No, that's great. Keep going. And because I mean, from my uh, opinion, I, I call um, most strategy, especially in corporate world, is just a very expensive, fat pile of documents that just gathers dust in a filing cabinet somewhere and never to be seen again. And that's why I wanted to talk because, you know, executing sometimes on that strategy is where it falls over. Absolutely. I think a lot of people um, stop at the planning and actually they spend way too much, way too long on the planning piece of a strategy. It's extremely important to make a plan, but before testing this plan and executing on it and tracking and seeing how it goes, there's no, ne- there's no necessity in, necess- necessity in bringing a strategy to, together. And that's where absolutely a lot of people miss the point. And why do you think that they don't follow through on that? Like, what are the main barriers to, to the implementation? I think the first thing is, yeah, I think the first thing that we see a lot is making it tangible and making it accessible for everyone. So what does that mean? If I want to be the, I don't know, the best manufacturer of car in the world, I want to be the, the biggest retailer in the world. What does that mean? I'm going to be uh, helping every um patient in the world to be sane. What does that mean exactly for teams? They stop very often at the mission, at the vision of uh, where they want to be without the plan to make it tangible and accessible. That's the first thing. I think the second one is the um, the lack of alignment between the, the different teams horizontally in a company. So let's say marketing, sales, product, everyone has their own plans but they sometimes don't even discuss them. And that alignment piece is always missing. And the third one, which is the focus. And I think with the focus, I would say, you go to the gym at the start of the year, you say, I'm going to be the most fit person in, on earth. And then in February, you start forgetting. And in April, you say, oh, I had these resolutions in January. And then in August, you say, oh, I wish I did them. So that's actually the, the lack of focus is the third piece. So the first one is really the tangibility of the strategy. The second one is the alignment between uh, the different teams and the bottom up and the top down of the company. And the third one is really this focus or perseverance in doing it. I like the third one because um, one of the definitions of strategy that I heard was uh, deciding what not to do. And that is like excluding things you know may be beneficial and work really well. But uh, having that discipline to say, no, uh, we're just going to focus on this one or these three. And that's it because that's all we have capacity for. And I think like a lot of people, they bite off a bit more than they can chew because everyone's got the ideas and they're like, oh, we need to do this and this and this. And it usually stems from some kind of brainstorming or committee-based, group-based, uh, you know, ideation phase. And sometimes that yeah. convergence phase down to like, okay, let's prioritize these. Which ones, is this aligned to the goal that we're trying to get or not? Um, and that becomes hard when you become a big, big business too. Yeah, the, 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 the best book I read is the uh, book called The One Thing. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, it's a very interesting Who's book. It's really, um, it's actually by uh, two authors, uh, Jay Papasan and Gary Keller. And I've read it like, okay. I think a long time ago, but it really speaks about one simple concept that you can actually realize that a lot of companies have done, which is focusing on one big thing. If you, th- if you think of Uber at the start, they focus on the ride sharing. If you think of Amazon, they really had one focus. Apple had one focus. Microsoft had one focus. And I think if you even look at, I mean, obviously all of them have uh, diversified today and they have expanded. But one of the statements that early on um, Elon Musk said is it's okay to have all your eggs in one basket as long as you control what is in this basket. And I think it is all about this focus. 
I, I know a lot of people would not understand or like would not agree with the fact that, oh, you should not be putting all your eggs in one basket, right? But that is also about the 80-20 rule. How do you focus on things is, is about what not to do. I like it because um, I heard in the PayPal days, and this is in uh, Zero to One's uh, book and in some interviews with uh, Keith Rabois, I know who was uh, quite integral. Um, in one of the interviews, he says he's got this really good audio YouTube version um, online. I'll try and link it in the comments. But um, he says like there were notorious Peter Thiel and Elon Musk at PayPal days for like not letting anybody do more than one thing at a time. It's like do one thing, do it well, finish it. Then we move on to the next thing. Then we move on to the next thing Absolutely. after that. And that sort of focus means that nothing can get half done or sort of deprioritized because, you know, everybody's aligned. Um, and I just find sometimes, you know, in these days of, uh, you know, remote work and everything, who is the person that has the discipline that needs to enforce that focus in the organization? I guess like there's the person, but there's also the, all of our environment is getting us uh, distracted the entire time right like we have slack uh, notifications we have emails we have meetings and if you look at the time of focus in any person's day it's less than one hour sometimes and that is the problem it's it's a cultural problem it's not one person role it is the accountability that can help you at any level to deliver your job ownership of something is telling everyone that this is what we need at a company level and this is how you can help us get there as soon as everyone understands how they will be contributing to something bigger, no one will be distracted because they know that this is what I'm going to deliver by the end of the month. Whether it is in sales or in product or in marketing, you can define these very specific and tangible goals that will make everyone focused. But it's a culture of focus that you are driving, not a person or a police going, are you focused? Are you focused? That doesn't work. Okay, so it has to be an organizational-wide sort of uh, cultural trait then to... to be that kind of business because i just you know I, I work with a lot of startups and you know it's very dynamic environments and i want to talk about this pretty soon but um, when you've got a very dynamic environment there's this kind of need to adapt and change what you were doing uh to adapt to the new way things are going and there's this string of strategy called emergent strategy which is mm -hmm. like instead of what was the old school thing is that let's have our you know start a financial year or pre start a financial year we'll have the corporate planning session you know the consultants come in the, the boardroom you know the old white guys mm -hmm. like you said then you know they sit down and they um they nut out the strategy for the next 12 months and then they dust their hands off and go okay uh we'll, we'll pick up that in 12 months later and uh, maybe there's some quarterly sort of milestones or whatever but it, there's no sort of constant focus there of yeah. adapting that um obviously maybe that applies well when things aren't changing but when things are changing really fast is that the best way to do it and what are your thoughts on emergent strategy yeah, I mean, like, this is how I always talk about strategy. It has to be adaptive. It has to be agile. It has to be moving. And strategy has different phases. So you have the, the phase of making a plan. Then you go to executing on it. And the making a plan doesn't have to last as long as you, they were, like, thinking before years and months. It has to plan. You have to, sorry, you have to plan in a certain and moderate way. And then you go to execute. You can fail fast. You can learn fast. And you will evolve your tactics to get to your end goal and strategies can change over time. That's totally fine. I don't know if you've heard of the shark fin effect. No, no. Have you heard of that? Sounds good. Okay. So it looks like a shark. It's actually a very interesting curve. It is a curve that replaced kind of the belt technology curve that came in these, I don't know, is it sixties where it shows like, yeah, you have the early adopters and then uh, the majority, then the, the laggers. And this one is actually much more interesting because it looks like a shark. Um, the teeth of a shark, the, the, the fin. And then it shows you that some people now are just testing and learning very quickly. 
And very, very um, quickly after that, you will have a very a small time of um, period of time to be able to adapt it. And otherwise you are just too late. And that's how every single industry is going. You have to go very fast and be able to adapt. And how can you be able to be adaptable is the question because it's not only about being adaptable, it's about fast adaptability. And to be fastly adaptable, you need the skills, you need the tools, and you need the culture and you need the alignment between all of these people working together. And that's where it's very funny because when you speak about strategy and adaptability, you speak about innovation at the same time. And I think uh, there was a study this year that said 75% of organizations have put innovation as, as one of their top uh, three priorities, but almost 60% of them do not have the processes or skills or people to innovate. Because they can't move fast and innovation is all about moving fast. Even in healthcare, when you look at um, the AstraZeneca of the world, the Johnson & Johnson and the Pfizer, they were able to go very fast with something that take what used to take years. And that is the fast adaptability. Sometimes it's your environment that is helping you move faster because you're obliged. But that's what is expected from companies today. So are you saying then the, the thing that prevents people from moving fast is generally um, like a cultural capability thing and like a mindset thing as well as like skills and like a resource constraint? Or what, what do you think are the main problems there? I think it depends on the size of the company. If you are looking at small startups, I think the worst problem that they have is focus. They are trying to do so many things at the same time and they will not succeed with any because they, they all are born as an ecosystem. And they are doing everything at the same time. Now, in the large organizations, moving fast uh, is a struggle because of the culture, as you said. But also, like, you hear so many of them doing a digital transformation that is taking them 10 years or a migration of technology that has been taking them 15 years. And it's all about the lack of execution of these strategies. So every year they come with the same plan and they try to execute again. And it's, it's that top-down culture that is hurting them as much as possible. So it's like a merry-go-round effect. Um, so do you think then that sometimes that's because the, so some of the decision makers at the top don't understand the execution piece to have that sort of nuanced understanding to then make the right decisions? Is it a decision-making governance kind of issue? Or? Look, I think uh, for me, and it may hurt a lot of people to say that, but the only thing that you should not be outsourcing is your strategy because your teams know what their business needs. If you ask them, what are the problems that we're trying to solve? They are the closest to your customer. And I know it's it's like very silly to say, oh, it's all about the customer, but it is. But the people actually sitting in the boardroom haven't met a customer for years now because they lost this contact and they really think that they know the customer, but they don't. If they are identifying strategies and trends based on what the consulting are saying, what the consultants are saying, they are missing the point and they are sometimes predicting trends that are not existing on the ground and the customer on the ground is facing very different problems of what these trends are saying. So you have this um, gap between what we think and what we know and what you want the customer to have and what the customer wants to have. Okay. So this does that make sense? A, like a, a yeah, no, it completely makes sense to me. I mean, I, I see it quite quite often. And, and like on on this note, there's this concept called target operating model. And it's not just about breaking things into tasks. It's like it looks at the organization holistically. Do you guys sort of get into that area at all or not? Well, I think every big goal needs to be broken down into smaller 
uh, goals and objectives and projects and you want to measure uh, KPIs to show you that you are going uh, in the right direction. And obviously, on a daily basis, you're not saying that my goal is this and then period. You have to identify how to get there. And this is where tactics come in. This is where tasks and actions come in. And this is where you start identifying how am I um, executing today and this week to get to that end uh, in mind. I think what is the only difference between um, task management, let's say, and strategy execution is task management is this is my list of the day, this is my list of the week, and I'm going to do them. And the more stuff I do, the more productive I will feel, right? Now, productive does not mean effective. And strategy execution is saying the same exact thing, but before you put your list of tasks today and this, this week, just ask yourself, why are you doing this? Where are you heading with that? What is the end in mind? And if you just ask yourself this question, the tasks will be very different. And the order and the priority of these things will be very different. It's as simple as this. Yeah, it's funny. Um, this happened. Uh, I've got a lot of experience with this. Um, you know, these Asana sort of tasks or Trello or Jira or whatever. You know, let's, let's fill everyone up with sticky um, notes, tasks, you know, Kanban method or whatever. Um, and it's like, okay, the more we tick off that, the more productive we'll be, you know, build the product out. You know, that means productivity. Um, but what actually gets games there is that people tick off the easiest tasks to do, the quickest uh, first to look yeah. productive. And sometimes it's better focusing on one task that's actually really hard to do but it's way more valuable in the long run. But um, I think sometimes that sort of agile sticky note mentality um, automatically points people in the other direction. Uh, so again, sort of coming back to strategy, how do you prevent that from happening within an organization? I think you prevent it by explaining the why of doing things all the time and reminding people where we are heading. You need to communicate and expose your vision and your values. And you, re- you need to remind the people that are not doing that that this is important, this is not important. And every conversation I have with someone in the team that is feeling um, overloaded with work is, can you show me your metrics of um, urgent versus important? And in five minutes, actually, you can revamp the entire conversation and say, okay, well, you were doing a lot of unimportant and not urgent stuff. And as you said, they just seem easier. But why don't we actually just take a step back and then build something that will make you execute on all of these tasks faster, even though it will take you the entire week this week to make it, let's make it and then execute after that. And it's it's all about, I think, the communication and the culture again, because if your culture is really focusing on telling people to do what matters and not just more stuff, the, the company will, will shift and the results will be much more um, clear and um, achievable. Yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, I was just doing a, a growth strategy the other day for like a scale up. Um, we sort of in that past that startup phase got, you know, product market fit and we're ready to sort of like scale um, the the learnings that we've had from the past, you know, year period. And, you know, I get to do the task prioritization. It was like, had all the ideas from the CEO and myself and some other people, mm-hmm. you know, it was a list of 18 things. But then I was just conscious of the capability gap. It's just, just me and maybe one or two other sort of part-time people who have, you know, cross, cross roles. So then they have half their time to do this. So then we had to go through all of them. And, and uh, I used the ICE method, well, a variation on the ICE method uh, from Sean Ellis. I think he created this, which is like impact, yeah. 
confidence and ease of execution. And obviously the ease of execution is, is the big one because if you have a capability problem or it's just a very difficult, complex thing to do, that's going to be really hard, but it can be really high impact. So I think using those three, it's sort of helped me go, okay, let's create a point system. I know it's there's a lot of human bias in that, but it at least helped me go, okay, let's whittle that list of 18 down to six. And then let's just talk about those six and we're going to deprioritize those those other 12, right? And then we took those six and then rehashed them out. And then we had a top three and we're just going to top three for the next quarter. And, you know, that's how I would focus that go-to-market strategy. And we just all conscious, and because this is the problem that I notice is that everybody has an idea. Oh, they talk to their friend in the industry. Oh, we should be on this. We should be doing that. Oh, aren't you doing that? And then, you know, the investor's friend comes in. The investor's like, why aren't we, you know, posting on this? You know, we should be here. And then suddenly your list is like so big and you can't please everyone. And like that's kind of where it comes from. So this way I can kind of say to everyone, yeah. hey, yeah, I listened to you. It's down there. We did an assessment. Um, really important. Thanks for the feedback. Uh, in this quarter, we're going to prioritize these three and we'll come back to that uh, maybe in the next quarter or whatever. And that way still yeah. people have been listened to, but, you know. So that's that's my I, I think. I mean, what, what do you guys do at Cascade? No, I think I just wanted to comment on this one. Uh, new objects are always shiny and everyone will go and try to do the same thing. If you listen to a marketer um, telling you what they will be doing this quarter, you will hear a lot of tools that they have heard of, as you said, from someone else, and they got recommended. And you will hear like the five, six words that everyone is saying. And I would say, great businesses don't follow the rules. They create them. And every business that has succeeded has created something. And not because that company has done something and it worked, that you can take it to your team and just make it work. You have to find what is relevant for your audience and build these things instead of just building everything and just follow the rules of someone else or actually just use the tools that everyone is using because sometimes it's not relevant for you. And that is um, a constant battle with the team saying, we don't need this tool. We don't need that. We should not be doing this. This is a shitty idea. How can you make it different? How can you make it um, a special idea? And that's how we actually started the uh, strategy factory, for example. We, we Obviously, everyone wants to have a community. I was like, yes, this is the shittiest idea ever. Everyone has a community. What can we do to actually drive value to, to our audience? Let's think about it. Um, oh, we should do webinars. Yeah, everyone is doing webinars. We should be doing webinars. No, but what is the reason behind that? And then you end up doing something more special. If you push back on these first ideas, your teams have incredible ideas. You just have to sometimes challenge the first versions of them. And that's how we end up doing, uh, as I said, the strategy factory where you have all of these people who are expert in strategy, sharing their knowledge within their industry. Because as I said, strategy is not the strategy consulting uh, firm coming to tell you what to do is more, what is actually a VP of supply chain in a supply chain company or a retailer or consumer good um, company doing and what are the trends they are actually sometimes born from these companies right and this is the things that people want to learn about not just the framework not just the ideas they are looking for leaders and experts that have done something and then get them to to be inspired to do something similar but not the same it's interesting you say that because um dan rose is someone i follow on twitter he's a old amazon employee from back in the day and he said um the story behind aws uh which is like massive now um it was an internal need um they had problems with oracle solution at the time and so they needed to create this system 
for their own infrastructure. And then uh, organically through that, uh, other people ask them, oh, can other companies, hey, can you do that same thing that you did for yourself? Because that's really cool. We need that as well. And then they went, oh, wait a minute. Why don't we offer this as a service? And then, you know, 10, 10 years later, it's like a massive company within uh, a big conglomerate. So, yeah, I like that, you know, creating your own rules, creating your own products internally uh, with market need. That's great. I, th- I think this is how Slack was born as well. I think they were using it as a communication yes, it was a video tool game because company, email. I think. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's funny because you, you have this disruptive innovation, right? But you have this, I don't know how you call it, but actually it's almost like optimizing innovation where you take a problem that is not really well solved and then you solve it better versus you just um, come with a very different idea. Email has been here for ages and that was our only main of communication, mean of communication. And what Slack came with is actually uh, not a disruptive innovation, it was an optimizing innovation. What we are doing here is not working. We cannot communicate with email. What is a better option? Is Slack great? Maybe. It has a lot of noise and it has a lot of um, notifications, but it's way better. I find Slack much more effective than email. And I wish sometimes that I can communicate with my customers on Slack, not only my internal, my internal, my internal teams. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we probably can with Zapier, you know, just hook it up from your live person chat or Zendesk chat or whatever, and you probably can. But um, yeah, no, Let's interesting. Do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was doing that the other day, actually. Um, so like on this note, though, I want to come back to what we were talking about before, which is like why strategy fails into the execution phase. I have a couple of theories on top of what you already said, and sometimes it's a political thing. Um, I was reading hmm. Robert Greene's book, 48 Laws of Power, the other day, again, um, and, you know, it's quite... Uh, a pivotal book, especially in US business culture. You've got that one, you've got Cialdini's, you've got, um, you know, how to persuade influence people as well. Um, Those are sort of three big books. And I've noticed this, especially with consultants, they're very good at this, Mm -hmm. uh, management consultants, is that um, they don't want to stoop down to the factory floor and executives as well, because that would lower their sort of power or perceived power because, you know, why would they need to go down to the floor? They've got other people to do that for them. And there was two um, of the laws in particular that got my attention. Probably law number seven, which is get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Um, so that's like, you know, all the yep. very grimy execution stuff that you probably don't want to get into. And then law 26 was keep your hands clean. Uh, you'll make mistakes but you need to take care of the problems that may eventuate. So you keep your hands clean by getting other people to do all dirty work and have them as a scapegoat to blame, which is why a lot of um, consultants will then have the implementation agency that comes in and they can sort of separate themselves from that phase. So for me, it's also a political thing, especially like you said before, if the Hmm. culture isn't conducive to failure, that is a weakness if um, someone wants to make a political move on you. So therefore, everyone regresses to the mean of the most bland, risk-free idea that will just like coast along. Yeah. Um, that's my theory. What do you think of that? What have you seen? Yeah, I think a couple of points on this one. The first one is, if it's not my idea, it's not a great idea. That happens very often in, in large organizations. And it all goes back to who, who got the idea. But then innovation or strategies um, are successful for one reason, in one situation, sorry, when the idea, the team, the execution, the timing are right. So you need this big four at the same time. You need the big four to happen to get the idea to be executed. And I think uh, one thing that I found really funny recently, when I was thinking about it, if you have a very good idea and working for a large organization, 
Do you think you would go and explain it to the CEO of the business and say, hey, I have this amazing idea and I'm going to, um, let's do it. No, you actually go and open your, uh, create your own startup, right? And the problem is not only political, but also about um, the incentive. Why would John go to the CEO of a 10,000 uh, employee company and tell them, hey, I have this idea and we need to make it and this will make so much revenue. You will just go away and then do it by yourself and you will keep working with that large organization until the idea works. So you're using the salary of the large organization to make your ideas happen. And, and, that, and that's the problem is innovation is not encouraged in large organizations or any organization actually. Well, there's a disincentive. That's why I laugh when these big organizations, they create their own innovation lab or, you know, whatever it is. And you can just tell it's like a buzzword that they're bought into because, you know, it goes against the, the rest of the culture within the, the organization. Like you said, there's no incentive. Just um, And that's why it's so hard to find really good uh, tech people because, uh, especially in growth, uh, I always say in marketing, like, why is it hard to find a good market or growth person? Because if you're that good at creating value for the company, why are you doing it for someone else? Like the attrition rate is like so high that you'll just be left with like the less good people generally over time, unless you're compensating them very, very well. Yeah. Which is and there's the also the, yeah, absolutely. And there's the other one, the other point, which is um, breaking habits. That is extremely important. Uh, companies are afraid of breaking a habit, breaking a process breaking a rhythm of something because it's working and that fear of breaking it sometimes make them not at all take the risk of questioning it or doing something different and one of the articles i was re reading uh, at some point at h on hbr was saying why strategies fail is because they are not strategy as simple as this <laughs> and one was actually that you have to make change your default and if you don't want to change all the time and you're not making that change as a default uh, part of the culture, you will not be succeeding. Okay, I, know, I like that. That's really interesting. Um, so like if we are doing good strategy, can you tell us a little bit about Cascade and, and what some of the problems and the reason behind that product and does it solve any of these things that we're talking about already or not? Yeah, absolutely. So Cascade is the strategy execution platform to align and then accelerate your team. And it's very easy concept. You can put your plans, then you can um, execute them. And as you execute them, you are tracking the results. That's as simple as um, it gets when you explain Cascade to companies. Now, the, the additional point that Cascade is uh, bringing to uh, large organizations is this alignment. So you can actually see the plan of marketing, the plan of finance, the plan of product evolving and getting executed, but you also see how aligned are they between each other and with the company vision and direction they are taking. So at any point you see the cascade map and the cascade map will tell you, okay, um, marketing team, you are 35% aligned with the organization goals and you are seven out of 10 in terms of tracking. So you're, gre you're green from a tracking perspective, but you're red from alignment perspective. So that means that you're doing a lot of stuff, but they are not maybe the right stuff for the business and a lot of it will not be feeding into the growth or whatever the goal of the business is. So you see a lot of organizations coming to see this alignment because duplica duplication of effort is one of the most expensive things that companies uh, suffer, especially when they are large. A lot of people doing the same projects at the same time and project management tools are not enough to do this alignment uh, assessment and the health of this alignment at any time. 
that's basically what Cascade is. And it helps you really feel much more confident in building a plan from scratch and make some small ideas become a bit more tangible and accessible. And then share your ideas with someone else. And when you come back with your entire team, you will be always remembered what is your end goal that you're trying to achieve. And then you will be landing on a workboard that tells you these are your tasks of the day and of the week. And that's why you're doing them. And that actually goes very far because it's just remembering, reminding you that you need to be focusing and you need to be aligning with what the company wants in general. It's helping a lot of organizations from very different industries. Some of them are just um, large consumer goods companies rolling out COVID vaccines right now, or actually Formula One car manufacturers and companies that are trying to build cars. And I think the, the, the big difference between what Cascade uh, provides and what are the other kind of like platforms are providing in, in the market is this, um, again, alignment, but also the drive of focus when the teams are doing the job. Okay, I like that. Um, so you're connecting departments together so everybody has context behind their own departmental or little group that they're working in. In the growth world, a lot of teams are made up of cross-functional members to kind of try and prevent that, that sort of misalignment of and and maybe missing um, context from something else that would help the achieve the goal. So coming back to that, I mean, before Cascade, uh, what did what is the substitute for for that platform like? What used to happen in the past? Yeah, I think a lot of uh, companies uh, that joined Cascade um, they were on PowerPoint. Oh yuck! And Excel files. People still do really that. like a lot of companies are still using Excel and PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the larger the wow. company is, the 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 more by default these products are. So um, you take their Excel files and PDFs sometimes to try to convert them to plans and uh, get them started with the execution. Um, that is, I would say, 95% of the cases, companies coming with Excel files and PowerPoint. Wow. Okay. And then obviously, maybe the substitute for that alignment was team meetings or group meetings or other heads coming in or workshops or something. Is that what happened with the alignment part of things? Or, or just no alignment <laughs> and a lot of uh, spend <laughs> yeah, happening <laughs> because there's no alignment. I think... You know, I think we've been hearing about alignment and silos recently a lot, but it wasn't actually the case because most of the organizations were in the same, obviously, building and they were communicating much more often than now. And now with the remote culture or like the obligation of working in different uh, places, it is becoming a, a problem for even the, the companies that were aligned before. So um, it is almost like a new problem in some organizations and some industries. But it is something that is costing a lot of companies a lot of money for years and hasn't been solved. Interesting. I like that. So you're missing that sort of water cooler chat or the lunches with maybe someone else in the other department and, you know, chit-chatting about what they're working on, what you're working on. When you work remote, there's none, none of that sort of chit-chat context, is there? It's just you're doing a task, you meet with your own team members, and maybe there's a, a weekly town hall or group meeting on a Friday. And that's, that's the only exposure you get to everybody else. Yeah, I mean, in France, I used to... Um, we used to solve a lot of problems at the coffee break and a lot of people smoke in France. So you would go downstairs under the building and then you are meeting with other people and just smoking and then you just solve the problem and then go up. And I think communication is extremely important, but obviously big misalignment cannot be solved with chats and just like being in the same office. It really needs more effort at the company level to align the culture, to speak about the, what matters and have teams focus on them. 
Yeah, great. So um, in San Francisco, it's a bit different. We used to go on, you know, one-on-one walks. So uh, with different people in different departments, we'd um, be queued up for every week and we'd go out and go to Phil's Coffee or whatever um, and get our coffee. And that's how we would chat and get contacts and uh, what are you working on? What problems are you having? And then, you know, it was a bit of, it was a tiny bit of like a buddy system, but it would rotate every every week. So it's really interesting what we did there. I heard also in France, you like to have long lunches. Is that still a thing or, or not? I wouldn't call them long. I would just call them uh, the right amount of time. We need a break of one hour and a half to two hours in the day to get relaxed, to get energized and come back to work again. I think it is important. And actually, France is one of the most effective company, uh, countries in the world. And we still have these breaks. We have the coffee breaks. We have the lunch breaks. But we're still very effective. I think it is a culture of focus. And that is my arrogant side. Uh, getting started here so don't take it too far but i think um every culture has some some like things that are different right and i i think the lunch thing in france is sacred so don't talk about it <laughs> okay okay i'll try not to okay so um if your strategy is working where will we see this pop up in metrics like how are we going to measure a good strategy from bad strategy yeah i think you want to define important KPIs for the business and important KPIs for every person and then really look at how they are evolving. And sometimes they are not going as fast as what you want, but there is a reason behind it. And I think what you want to go after is really understanding the context and why this is not working. And I think the earliest you stop that trend, the better it is because this is where you will be able to find different ways to get there. Sometimes it's skills, sometimes it's people, sometimes it is um, environment. Sometimes it is actually the customer that you're not understanding very well and you want to go back and ask again what's going on. We talked about barriers. Um, let's just talk about if you want to get in the area of a strategy. Um, obviously, you know, you need to have quite a lot of context. So generally, I don't see junior people entering strategy unless they've got some hookup with a management consultant friend or whatever, the nephew of, of a partner or whatever. Um, so, you know, what's your advice for people who are wanting to move maybe from an existing role into strategy or a student who really likes strategy and wants to do that full time? What was your path and what would you recommend? Yeah, look, I, I did strategy consulting before, uh, but I wouldn't say that strategy is a path. It is everyone should be strategy. It should be doing strategy. Business is strategy. And at any level in the business, you should be executing with strategy in mind. So whether you are a team member, you are a team leader or an executive, you should be putting strategies to achieve what you are trying to achieve. And I think it is as simple as what we explained at the start. Identify where you want to go and how to get there. That is strategy. Everything around strategy is complicated because we want it to be complicated. We want things to be more um, complex because it is almost like, oh, it's, it's this privileged thing that no one understands. And that has been the problem of strategy is that privileged um, concept that is very complex, um, very unique, and no one can understand. So I would say just understand what strategy means, and then you can, you can do strategy at any level. I like it. Um, I was looking at Louis Grenier. Um, he, he runs this um, podcast called Everybody Hates Marketers. Um, and he recently did a video of him launching this new How to Stand the Fuck Out uh, product, which is just, mm-hmm. you know, self-branding distinctiveness kind of offering that he's doing. And he went through and documented um, 
you know, after this is a year ago when he started it, but it's been quite successful. Um, so I want to talk to him later about it. But anyway, he then posted this video of him on YouTube the other day uh, about him. It was a live stream of him planning his strategy uh, for this new offering. And it was just two pages and it goes through each thing. And it was very, very simple process. I'll put the link in the, in the, in the bottom. It was like 44 minutes, but I had to skip through, but it was just really refreshing to see, hey, strategy isn't a 45 page document. It can be just two pages, especially when it's a new product. Like, you know, there's a lot of unknowns, so you don't really have much to talk about. Uh, I think you can kind of suffer from what we call complexity bias or um, analysis paralysis, right? Yeah, you want to do your research. You want to understand what's going on in the market. And if someone has done something very similar, Google is um, undervalued in many ways, Google search should be something that you should be immediately starting with as soon as you have an idea, just Google it. I mean, you can see if this exists and what has been done and then take it from there. And I think that is a piece of uh, work that is needed for any strategy today and people miss it. Now, do you want to research for seven months in one year? Maybe not because by the time you, you finish your research, someone else has started something that is very similar to what you wanted to do. So I think that the, the research is important, but not as long as what people think they should be doing. As soon as you hear the word framework and, oh yeah, I'm using this very complex framework, then you should stop and then to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing now? Or am I just um, fascinated by the framework and just like very excited about it? I always say um, to people like uh, strategy, there's strategy that uh, looks good, strategy that sounds good, and then strategy that is good. And they're not often synonymous. They're very different beasts. <laughs> and um, I think that's very true sometimes. But coming back to you, uh, I want to hear more about your experiences just quickly before we talk about some other things. But um, have there been any really funny moments or uh, things in your career? Because you've had a pretty varied career with the tech scene, um, working in different countries around the world. I really want to hear about some of the strategy that you've executed that's been really good, some stuff that's failed or some stuff that's been really funny or unexpected. Can you give me any highlights there? It depends how 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 you define strategy sometimes because it could be the entire company growth or sometimes just a specific project that you are executing with your team. And obviously, I've been part of um, several industries, but always with tech. So I worked for Expedia Group. And I know that today, travel is not the, the way we thought about it before, right? And I think like five years ago when I was in travel, business travel was one of the most important things ever. So all of the strategies that we executed to help companies connect their teams were actually fantastic at that point. Now, right now, if you want to ask the same questions to business travel companies and what to do, you can't ex- you can't explore the ideas that we're exploring five years ago, right? Uh, with the with the disconnection of the world and with the imprisonment that we are facing right now between countries, um, these strategies don't um, work anymore. I think for me, a fun story though was um was one of the first companies i worked for and we were actually uh, between let's say between 50 and 70 people working on a very big program and it was for one of the largest banks in um in europe and it had many entities so it had the moroccan entity the turkish entity the italian entity the uh, french entity and the Belgian entity. I think I mentioned the five of them now. And we were talking about planning and research and something came up and it was a very urgent decision that we had to make. 
right? So I was actually dealing with the entire uh, program and I was in contact with the five countries based in France, but working with Belgium, France, Morocco, Turkey, and Italy. And we needed to solve uh, that question very quickly to move faster with the planning. So I sent an email to the five countries and um, it was pretty clear that I'm saying this is a very urgent topic we need to discuss. The Belgian team came back within the five within five minutes saying, let's meet in an hour. The French team said, let's meet this morning. The Italian team said, this afternoon around three, four would work for you. Then I had also, um, let's talk this week. And then the last answer that I got, come here and let's discuss in person. And that was how uh, urgent was the topic by culture. And it was very funny to see that sometimes cultural differences are so important to tackle when you are building a strategy because we look at things differently. We worry about different stuff and priorities are different. And sometimes life and family and, and health are disregarded in so many societies. But for some, they are much more important than anything else, which takes you to the question of how can we do better at work to kind of like relieve us from all of the stress and the pressure that some work can trigger for us? And how can we create this balance between what is important for us as a person and what is important for us as a company? And how can we find this uh, middle ground to get everyone successful, but also everyone happy? It ended up maybe more, much more philosophical than you were thinking. But that's how, you, yeah. Yeah, because you're talking about um, culture difference here, and this can happen internally in different industries. There's a cultural norm, a way of doing things, and then also within the departmental culture as well. So, you know, sometimes the marketing culture is seen as the creative ones, and then, you know, the counter, the, the boring bean counter kind of people. Um, you know, you've got admin people who are very sticklers with, you know, whatever, and then you've got the salespeople who are like the talkers. But um, there's a lot of, um, I would say the same sort of similar differences, even within the same company. Yeah, it's all about knowing your audience. And sometimes the marketing team need to be uh, speaking a different language when they are talking to product or sales. Same with sales. They need to be talking with a customer very different uh, from internally. It's all about knowing who you are talking to and how you capture that message to them. I love it. Hey, so we've got some quick fire questions uh, that I ask everybody. Um, you've already mentioned one book, but um, perhaps is there a book you're reading now related somehow to this topic that you're finding really interesting or have just read that you would recommend to everyone read? Hmm. Um, I did not really get into the details of the book yet, so I'm just starting. It's called Thinking Systems. It's uh, Thinking Systems, The Art of Strategic Planning, um, and it's written by Zoe McKee. Yes, this is one that Matt Watkinson... I'm yet um, to discover exactly what, what this will have. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Matt Watkinson, uh, I interviewed him on CX. He recommended this one as well, as well as Annie Betts' um, book as well uh, about poker and, and, and probability-based uh, decision-making. Oh, nice. Did you read any of them? I have not. Uh, <laughs> I need to read both of them. But my problem is, I get these great recommendations. It's like, where's the time to read them? And it's like, I should really prioritize it a bit more. But anyway, um, that's the second or third time I've heard someone mention it. So I probably highly recommend you continue reading that uh, based on... Then um, you end up, you end up, end up on YouTube uh, watching the summary, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Blinkist or, or Audible or something. If you don't have enough time, you will end up on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Um, what about favorite website resources that you use uh, in your day-to-day work? You did mention Google before, but is there anything else that's like a bit of a repository of wisdom that you use or go to? Uh, I think it depends on the topic. I go a lot to HBR, but I also read a lot of um, content from Reforge oh, yeah, yeah. Brian Belfort. for yeah. PLG. So if you are interested in growth and product-led growth, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I read a lot from OpenView, uh, one of the creators of product-led growth uh, in the US, Boston base. I also like a lot of content from uh, ProfitWell or Price Intelligently. They speak about uh, pricing yep. of um, B2B SaaS, etc. So these are like my three, uh, I would say, blogs. Now I go to the Strategy Factory as well because there's a lot of content. And I think one of my favorite pieces about the Strategy Factory is these studies that can um, analyze a business from A to Z and really understand the strategy and how they became successful. They're very long. You can like actually take two, three hours to read them. But you have like how Heineken became Heineken, how IKEA became IKEA, how Bunnings became Bunnings. And it really details the story from the start to today and sometimes even predicts where they would be going. So it's a very interesting uh, read that I would recommend to go um, and um, explore. There are uh, already like 50 of them and they will be much more, many more, sorry, by the end of the year. And there's a lot of videos in there as well that you can watch from the experts like from Walmart, Pepsi, uh, Coca-Cola, Unilever, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, it's not advertising. It's just like a blog that I'm really w- reading a lot from uh, right now. So kind of like a strategy breakdown of their story, where they came from. I like it. That's great. And what about um, tech yeah. that you can't do without every day um, that helps you do your job better? Uh, hardware or software? Oof. Any tips there? Um, yeah, well, you, you always need a Mac, right? To just work. You can't use anything else. Logitech HD camera. Yeah, exactly. It's in here. Um, I use HubSpot all the time. Uh, I love HubSpot. We use it for our CRM. We use it also for building the website. Uh, Our sales team use it. Everyone use it in the business. Um, We love HubSpot. Uh, We use Slack, unfortunately, too much. uh, But Slack is very important for us. And yeah, Google Docs sometimes is is very good. When you want to just write... A one-page idea, as you said at the start, Google Docs is great. Um, and you can do any job with all of these things, and that's it. Well, as you know, I use Google Docs for pre- prepping uh, these uh, podcasts because, you know, I, I sort of give it a week for me to think about the topic, what questions to ask, and then I read or listen to a couple of your podcasts, and then, you know, things will pop into my head, but it won't be all at once. So I sort of use it as a repository, and then, you know, the guests such as yourself can sort of go in there and look, okay, this is what John's going to talk about to kind of get mentally framed up for, for what to expect. So I love it. Um, big fan of that. Um, and um, okay, so you've already plugged. And then you land on a 20 page as a guest. Yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> I'll have to reduce that down a bit. Um, so, and then on that note, um, you've already sort of plugged uh, Cascade and and the the blog, uh, which is Strategy Factory. Yeah. Okay. And what what's the URL of that? Oh, it's uh, cascade.app slash strategy factory. And what's the best way if people are interested in what we're sort of talking about or, or Cascade or anything else um, to get in contact with you? Um, what are you most responsive on? LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I'm very active. Uh, I know that you know that I'm very active on LinkedIn now. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I love um, how you got your team on board as well. It's a really cool strategy because you know how personal profiles are like quite. Um, and on that note, how did you get your team sort of comfortable with posting? Because this is a problem that I've had with some teams. Like uh, there's a bit of a barrier there. Like what do I say? What do I post? You know, I don't want to 
talk to crickets. Uh, how have you sort of, have you been part of that or facilitated that? I think everyone in, in the team is very proud to be working at Cascade and that helps a lot. I think also there is a factor of saying email is dead for so many leads and people don't read their emails. So you want to find them somewhere else. And by putting your fa- a face on your name on LinkedIn and start posting videos and sharing your thoughts, people are much more um, open to reply to you. And even if they don't reply on LinkedIn, when they see your name and you send them an email, they will remember you. So they they have seen the benefit themselves uh, on top of the pride that they have for working for Cascade. That has been a very um, in, a good enabler to get them on LinkedIn. Awesome. All right, well, like, uh, thanks very much for the chat today. I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, that was really interesting. I'm sure we're going to be talking and having some more banter on LinkedIn uh, in the coming weeks or months. Yeah, all the best in the future and let's, let's keep talking. Thank you so much. Very nice uh, seeing you today. And uh, yeah, talk to you soon.